the blessedness of the hour certainly continues to be a great one as you and I assemble to offer our heartfelt praise and worship unto God. And we're so thankful that we've each been blessed with a measure of health, the capacity of mind and body to gather in the way that we are. As we've already mentioned today, we certainly are so mindful of many who would love to be here with us but cannot be. And we hope that for them things are far better very, very shortly and very, very soon. But as you and I offer our worship unto God this day, may I invite you to consider the confrontation. Now, I named it that way, for that will direct us through much of our discussion today, but the confrontation. It has already been read in our hearing today from the opening verse of Matthew chapter 4, and this next slide is a more extensive introduction to the topic before us today. Don't you oftentimes find it an intriguing thing when forces of different character meet in a particular clash one against the other one. There are many times in sports that that very thing takes place. Maybe over the course of a season, two teams seemingly rise above the others, and maybe they're undefeated at the time they are scheduled to meet, and suddenly that game takes on an interesting and rather significant matter of emphasis. I can remember many years ago rooting so much for the Jackson County Lady Blue Devils, and back at that time, quite often, we would arrive at a certain point in the season. We played Livingston every year back then, and probably still do, but the games just don't mean as much now. But back then, these two teams, no doubt, they may not have been undefeated, but they were often very, very good scorers and very good records, and they would meet. And quite often, we met Upperman, and much the same thing could be said. And those games... Those confrontations carried a great deal of emphasis because quite often the district champ was going to be determined. But to say that another way, we aren't just talking about athletics. It's not only true in sports, but it could also be true in other arenas of life. Maybe two nations are, are butting heads over some policy, and there's a significant confrontation that takes place. I would say that there's no confrontation anywhere that comes close to the one that we're about to discuss today. No athletic competition, no competition, if you please, upon earth. Nothing is going to rival this one. And I hope I can invite us, using the Word of God, to make that observation and to draw those kind of conclusions. Because there's no confrontation anywhere that has the stakes available that this one shall. And no confrontation anywhere that shall have the consequences this one does. What kind of confrontation is it? By the lesson text, you probably all have already figured it out. But why don't we cast a spotlight on the setting, preparing ourselves to look more in detail at the actual confrontation. And the setting will take us again to the features of those earlier chapters in Matthew. Jesus, our Lord, had been baptized. In fact, as chapter 3 of the book of Matthew details it, we understand that. He had been baptized not because of any sin that he had committed, but because it was to fulfill all righteousness, to borrow his own words. You might well notice that Jesus was born into this world for the express purpose of making available to mankind salvation. Even at the time of his birth, call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
You may well remember His own words in John 3 verse 17, "...the Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved." He came for the express purpose of making salvation possible. As you and I then reflect upon the nature of the Lord's life, all through His life, He, of course, was a Jew. He was faithful to the law of Moses. He kept it without offense. Isn't it interesting then to come to this observation? Through those points in His life, He had never committed a single sin, not one. Now, He was baptized at the age of 30, Luke tells us. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 and following. And so in that light, through 30 years of life, no sin, not by way of word, not by way of action, not by way of thought, no sin. And then we turn the page into what is Matthew, the fourth chapter. And in there we find the confrontation that shall capture our attention for the remainder of our lesson. That confrontation, as you can see at the bottom of that slide, will then bring fully to bear the matter of this one we call the devil. If you look back into the opening verse of Matthew 4, it reads like this, Then Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. You notice that this temptation was in a part of what was the will of God. He was led up of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit directed Him, motivating Him into this region wherein the temptation was going to be. It was not that He was doing something apart from the will of God. He was journeying into this area. The Lord knowing about the features of what would be transpiring there, and He was led there, it says, of the Spirit. You may notice further on that slide, this devil that He was going to confront there rather directly is one otherwise pointed out to us in the Word of God, both Old and New Testament. That one who is the enemy of God... Hadn't it been He, of course, who so often had appeared on the biblical stage, leading to some kind of sore and foolish decision? It was because of His prompting that David numbered the people and He shouldn't have done it, 2 Samuel 24. It was He who troubled the life of Job so much, Job chapters 1 and 2. It was He who you and I learned in Zechariah 3 was portrayed as the enemy of the human family and of God Himself. Jesus knew all of those things. But He also knew that in the fierceness of the moment, He knew in the matter of that circumstance that this confrontation needed to be. You can see on that slide... Jesus will later teach us that this devil is a liar. John 8, verse 44. He is a deceiver. Revelation 12, verse 9. He is the one who walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. To borrow the words of 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Now, none of us would question the strength of the devil. Mighty, powerful, great, and yet on this other hand is the Son of Man, Jesus Himself. It could also be said that He was mighty and powerful and great. And they are now about to meet, fully to bear, in the context of this confrontation. And may we go ahead and make observation, the entirety of eternity hangs in the balance. If the Lord succumbs, there's no heaven for any of us. 
If He gives in in any way, there is no salvation for any of us, for He will no longer be equipped to be the sacrifice for our sins. It isn't just a matter, you see, of His own circumstance. Everything for you and me hangs in the balance as well. This confrontation is a magnificent one in many ways, and it's colossal in its, in its consequence. On this next slide, may I invite us to continue that setting by noting this. In order for Jesus to be, which He shall later be at the time of His death, the sin sacrifice for all of us. We well recall that the Hebrew writer will point out in chapter 9, verses 24 and following, that Jesus was a one-time sacrifice for sin forever. The Old Testament sin sacrifice had to be blemishless. It had to be without spot in that sense. And so the Lord had to be without sin if He was to occupy the role of the appropriate offering for sin. If He gives in, if He stumbles in even the slightest and falls prey to any of these in this confrontation with the devil, we are doomed. I hope that we never read past this too easily and too trivially. I would at least offer that it wouldn't hurt to try to imagine you and me in the circumstance, at least something close to it. I know we're not the Son of God. I'm not trying to say we are. But imagine trying to face temptations on this order and to be true to God. You and I know how it turns out. And I know because of that it's easy to read through it and recognize the simplicity of it, but I hope we never think too much of that because it wasn't that simple. You'll notice on that slide, in Matthew 4 verse 1, it took place in the wilderness. That was a deserted area. Notice that it wasn't in a city. It wasn't in a place that was highly populated. This was in a place where you couldn't depend on anybody to help you. It was you and Him face to face. That's what it was going to be. Sometimes when you and I face temptation, and may I say it really is a great piece of advice, use others to help you. We have elders, family members, a spouse. You and I can often at least lean on the strength of other people. The Lord had no body on which to lean. It was Him and the devil. Not only that, could I invite you to note this. We are told in verse number 2, and when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. You and I also shouldn't just think that this was over just a few minutes of time. Forty days, a month and a half almost. Now may I say quickly this. There was this period of extensive fasting on the part of Jesus. Now Luke will quickly tell us that he ate not a thing. It's not as if you can suppose he ate only a little. Luke says he ate nothing. That being said, we notice in the course of this 40 days, we also notice Luke reminds us that there were temptations over the course of that period as well. I've tried to summarize that on the slide. We shouldn't think that the only temptations were these three of which we're now about to read. There were trials during those 40 days of fasting. There were issues of challenge by which the devil confronted him even then, but they weren't the great confrontation. 
Those are reserved for our discussion, a part of our consideration today. Don't you find it interesting as you close that slide with me? It's almost as if the devil had failed in the 40 days prior to this. The Lord hadn't succumbed to any of those temptations, and then He saves His best, His most powerful, His most prolific temptations for the end. Nothing else has worked. Now He's about to bring out the finest of His arsenal, the strongest of His temptations, the ones most likely to garner the, the allurement of the Lord and to cause Him to stumble. What were they? What was last? What did He save until now? On this next slide, as you begin to think with me, notice the first one in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. And when the tempter came to Him, He said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And so the Lord attacked, or rather the Lord was attacked, in the matter of His fasting. For 40 days and 40 nights he had eaten nothing. You and I might remember others in the Bible had in fact fasted for that duration as well. Moses had done it. Samuel had done it. Maybe it's worthy of notice on this occasion the Lord was over this period then directing His attention to, um, to the matters of spirituality. They occupied His full thinking. When you and I read about fasting in the Bible, that's its purpose, to draw one closer to God, to remove focus on physical things, including food, and to focus one's fullness of energy, fullness of thinking upon that which is spiritual in character. For 40 days that had been the case for the Lord. And now as you notice on that slide, the tempter said this, If thou be the Son of God, Command these stones to be made bread. An amazing temptation. If you hadn't eaten for 40 days, how hungry would you be? If you hadn't eaten for 40 days, how hungry would you be? I suspect most of us would do well to go even 8 or 10 hours without eating. I think we'd give in, don't you? Or at least I think surely we wouldn't make it longer than a few days. The Lord had to be famished. The Lord had to be extraordinarily hungry. Can you imagine how his stomach must have been growling? And all the while, given the nature of him as a son of God, he had the power to make available to himself any food that he wanted. Would you think about the most enjoyable meal you've ever had? The Lord, by miracle, could have conjured it up at any time he wanted it. And he hadn't done it. And now, even these rocks, he could have turned into the most exquisite bread you'd ever tasted. He could have turned it into the finest other meal that he would have enjoyed. And that was the tempter's temptation. Turn it into bread, would you? As a son of God, you'll have no trouble doing it. Why don't you do it? You don't have to be hungry like this. Turn these stones into bread. Immediately, you and I can appreciate, the, again, the devil having saved this temptation. To this point, it certainly might well be noted like this. The first words he used, If thou be the Son of God. 
I would one more time offer that that too was a strong element of consideration even in its own right. The devil knew who he was. There was no question in the mind of Satan who the Son of God was. He knew him. Well, you and I know him wording it that way, if thou be the Son of God. Demonstrate it to yourself as well as to me. Now, as you and I give thought to that, notice again, it is one of the strongest elements, it would seem to me, of consideration, and we all face it. Have you ever had someone question your attributes, question your capabilities, question your degree of knowledge or skill in some way of life? And in essence, they in some way will ask, demonstrate it to me. Why don't you convince me that you are or have what you claim to be or to have. As the devil, in fact, phrased it this way, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Surely in that light you may notice about the middle of that slide, you and I should do well to reflect upon the Lord's response. Wouldn't it be quick to say there's nothing wrong with eating? If there were, we'd all be in great trouble, don't you think? There's nothing wrong in the normal course of matters with eating. And yet the Lord would not turn the stones into bread. Rather, He answered like this, verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You see, Jesus immediately observed then that this which was the thought prompting in His mind by virtue of this temptation... It was not just an ordinary connection to a meal. It was connection to a prompting by the evil one. And in so doing, the Lord quoted Scripture. It is written, He said. That never ceases to be fascinating, does it? He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy, as you can see on that slide, specifically chapter 8, verse 3. And in that passage, the Lord dipped back into a text written thousands of years earlier, and He used it to answer the matter of the moment. Did that at least highlight for us the timelessness of the Word of God? I understand we live not beneath the law of Moses, but if the Lord could dip into a passage written 1,500 years earlier and use it to address a moment of temptation in His life, then what about you and me? Is it not the case that we too can utilize the ever-present and ever-powerful Word of God to address the temptations that we face? Man shall not live by bread alone. Isn't it first and foremost then to be noted, the physical issues in life are important. There's no question about that. But there is something more important than, than that. The food that you and I consume, the physical food that we eat, is truly a vital matter. But there is something far more significant. Connection to God, rightness in His sight, being pleasing to Him, all of that's far more important. And it only happens through the agency of this, man shall not live by bread alone, but what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You and I must be acquainted with it, conversant with it, obedient to it, for only in that way is that by which we shall live. Isn't it true? A person can be a walking dead man. 
There's a lot of people who walk about their daily walking life, but they're dead spiritually. Ephesians 2 tells us how that happens. Dead in trespasses and sins. Those who are physically alive that way are spiritually lifeless and dead. And the tragedy is beyond words. Jesus said, if you and I are going to be alive, really alive, alive spiritually, it shall be by virtue of connection through the Word of God. Didn't Romans chapter 6, verse 17 say, But thanks be unto God, ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. You see, the Romans at one time had been again walking dead men. But they had obeyed the gospel and were living in harmony with it. And as such, they had been freed from sin and were then the servants of righteousness. Romans 6 verse 18. Interestingly, beautifully, and buoyantly, you and I then reflect upon this confrontation. Again, all of eternity for you and me was hanging in the balance and the Lord did not fall for it. He didn't turn the stones into bread. If He had, He first would have been following the devil, and that's never a good idea. Secondly, He would have been succumbing to the needs of the flesh above direction to God, and that's not a good idea either. The flesh must always play second fiddle to the matter of direction toward God. It must be that way. Didn't Jesus say it like this in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then He continued in the next verse and said, Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You see, the morrow will take thought for the things of itself. Isn't it interesting then to notice temptation number one, at least of our study, has been an emphasis or at least an encouragement to emphasize the flesh over the things of spiritual truth. The Lord could see right through it and He didn't fall for it. May you and I be as wise. There's nothing in this flesh worth forsaking heaven. Nothing. Doesn't matter what it is on this earth. Doesn't this opening temptation at least put us in that mode of thinking? But that's going to be followed by this one. The devil failed now on the first of the big three in the confrontation. What about the second one? Beginning in verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Did you notice it began with the word then? There have been those who have claimed that these were somehow imaginary. No, they weren't. These were real temptations in every element. They were very real. You'll notice that the adverb points us to there was a sequence of some, of, of some essence to this. In verse number 5, The devil taketh him up into the holy city, that's the city of Jerusalem, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. That temple that Herod was then working on and that had been a part of the reconstruction efforts after the captivity 
There was a pinnacle connected to it, a high spot, if you please. And the devil then said this in verse 6, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. Jesus, in response to the first temptation, had quoted Scripture, and now the devil does too. I think we've all been fascinated by reflecting on the fact the devil knows the Bible. He does. He will try to pervert it, misuse it, misinterpret it, and you and I can be led down those false appreciations. May we always be careful. Just because some slick talker is able to say something in reference to the Bible verse doesn't mean the person is telling you what's right. The person can misinterpret it. And they may have their own advantageous matters that they're trying to, in fact, encourage. The devil quoted Scripture. He quoted from Psalm 91. The devil said this, If you're the Son of God, cast yourself off. And he then made this observation. The angels, in fact, will bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. You and I might be encouraged by reflecting on the actual Psalm 91 passage. What was under discussion? Was that a passage that foretold the fact that the Son of God, the Messiah, in fact would be able to cast Himself off of some high place and that He would not be damaged or injured? That wasn't the original thrust of the Psalm 91 passage. It was rather a poetic reference and a lovely one at that to the blessing of God's people over the course of time. The devil misused passage. May I say today, he's good at this. Some passage that you and I may well have often heard and he will in fact twist or put it in a different direction and you and I might begin to think, well, huh, maybe that is okay. Maybe I am all right. May you and I be far wiser than this. We have to understand that there are those today who will take various assertions of the Word of God and claim, are you really sure that it's wrong for a woman to preach? And they will take you right to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and use the very text and then claim that it does not mean what it says. Excuse me, are we going to believe the devil or are we going to believe what it says? And there are those who will ask, are you really sure that you have to be baptized to be saved? And they'll go right to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and then, with almost magical sophistry, they'll reach a conclusion that it doesn't mean what it says. Excuse me, are we going to go by what it says or by what this person claims that it says? And you could use that same idea with respect to many other matters as well. Maybe one of the most famous. Are you really sure that I have to attend every service of the church? I happen to believe the Sunday morning worship is all that's necessary, and I'm just fine the way I am. What verse do you use to substantiate that? You can't use Hebrews 10.25. It certainly doesn't teach that. May I say, the devil's having a lot to say about that. We need to be pretty mindful. We need to be present at every service for there's where the Lord is. And surely we would want to be a blessing to His cause and His kingdom. And we surely aren't putting the kingdom first if we can be there and choose not to be. It's just that simple. 
maybe it is in that connection, we're then back to Matthew chapter 4. Cast yourself down if you're the Son of God. The devil misused Scripture and then the Lord did this. In answer, in verse number 7, Jesus said to them, It is written again. The Lord also quoted some more Scripture. This time it was again for the book of Deuteronomy. As you can see on the slide, it was chapter 6, verse 16. One more time, he stepped back into a book written hundreds of years earlier and used it in direct forcefulness that led him to say this, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It's not right to tempt the Lord your God. I'm not going to just throw myself off under the illusion, under the consideration that God's just going to, in fact, spare me in this way might be said that you and I then should take note, the Lord one more time referred to and quoted Scripture. Surely we are at least reminded how vital it will be that we be knowledgeable of that Word of God so that we can be effective in using it at those moments of temptation for us. Could it well be said that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, "...there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful." who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Isn't it true that based on that text, in many ways it might be appreciated the way of escape might become evident by virtue of our knowledge of the Word of God. If we're not knowledgeable sufficiently of it, maybe we will be far more likely to fall into the chagrin and into the grips, if you please, of that old tempter. As you close that slide with me, isn't it a reminder that in many ways, one more time, there's a great danger to be seen in this? That danger connected with that connection to pride. Did you notice he one more time said, if you're the Son of God? If you're a Christian, someone may have said to you or me, then you shouldn't have any trouble with this or that or something else. And maybe you, place, you and I place ourselves in positions in which we're more likely and more prone to be tempted. Well, that certainly isn't wise. May we never overestimate our abilities. In this instance, the Lord, of course, emerged victorious out of this. Temptation number three. This one comes as you and I arrive at verse number eight. Again, the text says, The devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The first temptation had been turning stones to bread, and that didn't work. And the second temptation, cast yourself off this pinnacle of the temple, and that didn't work. It would seem reasonable to suppose that maybe this one was a very keen one indeed. And so in verse 8, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. We don't know which mountain, the text doesn't say. But it's what the Lord saw. It says, He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And not just that, but it says the glory of them. The finery of them, the monetary advantage, if you please, connected with them. 
Can you imagine being in a position to witness the materialistic wealth, the finery connected to every empire on earth and to see it all at one time? Most men, of course, would not give a second thought to having a desire for that. A lot of people are interested in money. No, they like more of it. And you and I know that, of course, money by itself isn't wrong, but the love of it is. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. And in this place, to see everything the world has to offer in that way and see it all at once. You'll notice verse number 8 concludes by saying, all the kingdoms of the world. And then verse number 9. Every one of those things you see, all of those matters connected to what you've just now witnessed, I can give it to you. I can make it yours. Because the wording is this, all these will I give thee. Every one of them. You and I probably would almost break beneath the load of thinking how much the whole world is worth. And yet the Lord was promised all of it on one condition. Fall down and worship me. I entitled this last one, An Attack in Relation to Worship, because that's what it is. And so we've seen the incredible nature of this temptation isn't it interesting to observe that it would be fair to conclude the devil apparently controls all of this, or else he couldn't have offered it to Jesus? Doesn't that teach us that one more time, the majority of people are under the control of the devil? The majority of people are under his sway. It's the minority that are under the control of the Lord. And so the devil could promise, and he could have delivered it. And now we notice in verse number 9, If thou wilt fall down and worship me, Jesus answered like this in verse number 10, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Get thee hence. Get away from me. Because worship is to be directed to God and Him alone. That's another great lesson, even for our day, isn't it? I point out to you on that slide, it is a sin to worship anyone or anything other than God, based on this text. It, of course, is reiterated other times in the Bible, but the thought is so keen, isn't it? And among other lessons, doesn't that highlight for us, if the devil can pervert worship... He has succeeded in a dramatic way. So you get men to change it somehow or do it differently than the way the Lord's will dictates. He has succeeded mightily. In this regard, the Lord was quick one more time to quote Scripture. As you can see on that slide, based on verse number 10, it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Taking us back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. You and I must worship God in spirit and in truth, John 4, verse 24. And the considerations connected to that worship that way rapidly lead us to conclude the confrontation. Get thee hence, Satan. 
joyously, wonderfully, beautifully. The devil did not succeed. Jesus overwhelmed him by virtue of using the Word of God. I would pause long enough to say this. In the confrontation, Jesus didn't work miracles. He didn't speak in tongues. He didn't do any of the things you and I have noticed in 1 Corinthians 12 that are those great spiritual gifts that were miraculous in character. He didn't do any of it. In fact, He refused to work miracles. But what He did do was quote this book. There is nothing on earth more powerful than what you and I hold in our hand when it comes to the Bible. It chased away the devil. Given the Lord's commitment to and His following of that, the devil was no match for him. And he will be no match for us either. The Lord's overwhelming in this confrontation. He won decisively. It's somewhat like those circumstances when you and I notice no two teams playing each other. And it's supposed to be a great game because maybe they're both so strong and highly matched and then it ends up it's a blowout. This was not even close. The devil went away with nothing. Jesus won everything. And aren't you and I thankful? Not only at that moment, but the rest of his life, he lived faithful to the Lord, to the God of heaven, never committed to sin, and he was that sin offering for us. Hebrews 4.15 then continues to say, that we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And so today, if you and I find ourselves in need of coming to the Lord, He endured this in faithfulness to make that possible. We can have our sins forgiven. We can then live faithfully, and we can look forward to heaven. But certainly, as you and I noted, it is left to our decision. It is left for us to decide that we'd like to do that. He endured this to make it possible for us to make that decision. Today, if you're away from the Lord, why don't you come back to Him? As a child of God who has gone astray, picture what the Lord endured. He endured these matters, this extreme hunger, and the faithfulness that went with it, and the matter of His refusing to submit to the devil. It was for you, and it was for me. Will you reject Him? Will you proclaim in essence it was for naught? He died that you wouldn't have to go to hell. Please don't decide to go there on your own. If you've never become a Christian, though, maybe for the first time you've come to realize the greatness of what the Lord did, what He endured. And we also would wish to share with you the plan of salvation that He made possible. Believe on Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Make a determination to turn from them, commit them no more. Confess audibly in the hearing of witnesses the nature of Him as the Son of God to be baptized, immersed in water for the remission of your sins. What a time of rejoicing and celebration. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways today, it would be our delight to do so while together we stand and while we sing.